Hello everyone, I'm John Byrne with Poets and Quants. We are here for Business Casual, our weekly podcast. And today we have a special guest calling in from France. I'm really happy to see her. I can see her, you can't, because we're recording this on Zoom. Virginie Fourguet. I'm no, I know I mispronounced your last name. Why don't <laughs> no, you? Well oh, really? Oh my goodness. That's amazing. <laughs> And Virginie's here with our co-host, of course, Caroline Diorty Edwards, who is the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and who once had Virginie's job, and Maria Wickvilla, the founder of Applicant Lab. Well, welcome. It's so nice to see you. I have seen you in many different places around the world. We actually did a podcast a number of years ago in San Francisco. And obviously, it's been an incredibly challenging 12 months for everyone, but particularly for uh, business schools where, you know, MBA students really rely heavily on social interaction. It's a big part of every MBA program. So I wonder from an admissions perspective, how have, have things gone at NCAD over this period and how is the application volume evolving? I would split the, the last year into three parts, most likely, <laughs> probably. So the first two, three months were just roller coaster because we just had to reinvent the admissions process and, and uh, try to reassure people that we would still operate, that we would be able to welcome them. We, we didn't know exactly how and, and when, but we, we knew we wanted to. There was the GMAT centers closing down there was people asking for extensions so that was very interesting <laughs> so from for the applicants and then also for the admits because we already had people who were about to start a few months later so their plans were were totally messed up so i would say that was the first phase that was just crazy um and uh, if i look back i don't want to leave that again ever <laughs> <laughs> and then we had the kind of more hope so th th we we almost imagined that we we were about to go out of this crisis and that was august september we were welcoming people in person we had made sure people would be um, able to come to campus in person and we were actually welcoming people so that was giving us some light at the end of the tunnel and then second wave <laughs> yes. and De December, January up until now comes with the same type of uncertainty, though I would say it's different from last year because now everyone knows what to expect, more or less. We know how to operate with dual mode, with some people zooming in and then the next day it's going to be someone else zooming in and being in person in the MV in the classroom. So we, it's, it's now, it's not back to something that we used to know before, but it's, it's back to something we've built together over the last year, basically. Right. And you, you have actually a more difficult task than probably any admissions director because you never have a rest period. I mean, you have two intakes in September and in January, you have eight different deadlines. So at any given time of the year, things are happening. Some, Applications are flowing yeah. in, you're interviewing candidates, you're evaluating people, uh, yeah. where many programs, you know, they have one intake only, and they might have only three deadlines as opposed to eight. 
and they have a little bit of a rest period, but there's no rest for you. <laughs> That's a good point. And I think the other thing that adds a little bit is the fact that we have to be mindful of what happens in Singapore as well as in Fontainebleau. So we follow the the governmental government regulations and guidelines in both locations. So sometimes we are told you can have 55 people in the classroom, but that's only valid for one campus. It's not valid for the other campus and vice versa. So yeah, so, that's so probably what kept wow. me at INSEAD for so long. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I know last time we spoke, it was actually about the very big spike in your application volume at one at one point. How has applications uh, flowed? Has it been a roller coaster ride as well with application volume? It's back to volumes that we we used to know that we used to see. It's still on the rise, but it's back to something around what we had last year pre-COVID with a few percent increase per round. So last round was about three, four percent, but it's nowhere close to the 50 percent increase we had last year for round two. But that's that it's it's still on on the rise, but it's more manageable. Ah, uh, now Caroline, do you remember the days when you had to do all these things and and deal with all these applicants asking all these embarrassing questions? <laughs> uh, well, yes. Um, I mean, it must. My heart goes out to the admissions team in it's yet because yes. I mean, I I I want to understand how difficult it must have been over the past year and. It's a challenge, as you said, John, it's a challenging enough job as it is without much respite over the year. And, you know, it's the largest MBA program in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Virginie is bringing in a thousand students a year from all over the world with very diverse backgrounds and very diverse ambitions. And you know, managing that, that sort of that international flow in, in such a, you know, in such complex times and everybody has a different challenge, right? Everybody has different circumstances. Everyone over the past year has, has faced unforeseen challenges. And at the best of times, you know, candidates and admits and, and you know, people who are in the applicant pool have, you know, they have a lot of questions, right? They, there's always a lot of interaction between the admissions team and the candidate pool. And I, I just can't begin to imagine how that has, you know, multiplied over the past year and, and the you know, the pressure on the team to just keep things moving and continue to be as responsive as they usually are. Yeah, I mean, you raise a really good point there because that's that's the other issue. Obviously, the core of the NCOT experience is the diversity of its students and how international they are, given the travel restrictions, the visa restrictions, the uncertainty over how you were going to deliver the program, the two campuses, the eight deadlines. My God, I'm getting exhausted just thinking about it. <laughs> Makes your head spin, right? <laughs> it, it really does. And yet, I mean, actually, one of the ironies uh, that I found interesting was Virginie's decision to actually enroll a smaller class than normal, even as applications were soaring. And now I think you've just enrolled your biggest class ever. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. It wasn't exactly just my decision. <laughs> but, <laughs> We're giving you all the power. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but that was a, a school decision. So we, we indeed discussed and debated what made sense. And the decision was made to purposely indeed, as you say, John, reduce the September class. 
and um, and then to allow people to defer to the January class, not to obviously disadvantage anyone, because mm-hmm. otherwise we would have been disadvantaging the people that were targeting directly the, the, the January intake. We decided to have a larger class to accommodate that. Yeah. What, what was the size of the class you enrolled in January? That is a new record. It's a 600. And, and how does that change your logistics and how you uh, deal with that? Well, that's actually a very good point because, I mean, that's me me talking here, but I must admit that I feel really, really, not sorry, but I my colleagues in the, in the program management and scheduling and student life and and careers have done an amazing job because they have had to push the walls they have had to find rooms they went to Fontainebleau downtown to to see whether we would be able to rent the theater because nothing is at, at the moment in France you can you cannot have uh, the theaters and you cannot go to to the movie or to and we decided to to have just a, a look and see whether we could have classes there or we went back to the origin of the um, Fontainebleau castle <laughs> wow. and see whether we could be hosted there so they they weren't very creative and, and see where we could host students we finally managed to fit everyone on campus because we also heard from students that they wanted to be obviously networking and able to see each other when they were on campus. So we we pushed wall literally because of the social distancing. And uh, so the team, the, it's, the whole degree program team did a, an amazing job um, facilitating the, the, uh, all this and, and making sure that people would be safe, healthy, and at the same time on campus. So that was the, the challenge. Right. And in a typical year in January, you would enroll how many? So so 500 total with 300 in Fontainebleau and 200 in Singapore. So you're up 20% uh, to around 600 yeah. or so. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. And the majority of the increase was in Fontainebleau rather than in Singapore because the Singaporean authorities were still putting constraints on the class size. Ah, right. Yes. Is the instruction hybrid or is it all face-to-face and physical or is it online? It's a new word. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's not so new anymore, but uh, it's, it's this dual mode where people can zoom in and at the same time, you also have people in class. So the faculty are always addressing some of the students on the screen as well as others in person and the faculty or <laughs> they they have been amazing over the last few months as well with teaching with the mask and the shield and the <laughs> oh my right exactly so if someone uh, is feeling not so good or just wants to be safer they can choose to take the classes online and if someone wants to go to class they actually can yeah exactly yeah. Is yeah, it always that, the student choice, Virginie, or, or do you, no. have you sort of mandated that you've had to break down the class and some people have to take some classes online? So one section at the beginning had to be online for part of their schedule at the beginning, and then it changed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's a student choice, depending on 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 the, their condition and whether they need to isolate. Mm. And did you have many issues with students not being able to travel to campus? 
so it that was interesting to observe. So um, we were missing a few people at the beginning of the program, and they could not join because of uh, visa and travel restrictions. Ultimately, they all came. So that was very interesting that a few weeks after, people were able to travel. So it took longer than usual where you just get a flight and you you land and you come to campus almost the day before the start of the program it took longer obviously with um, the quarantine and also some people to get the visa some some other others being having to do two different pcr tests and all this so but all in all it took longer but people managed to come to join mm, that's great wow when they wanted to yeah and how has the pandemic affected recruiting of the students? I'm assuming all the recruiting is now virtual, uh, but maybe not. It's virtual as companies do not come to campus. Mm-hmm. We have made, so companies were not so interested in coming to the campus, obviously, because that meant having their recruiters flying over. So that's understandable. So we did everything online. It is working really well. We had to change a little bit. We used to have big talent forums and where you you could have 1,000 people in a very fancy place in Paris or or in in Hong Kong. It's no longer the case, obviously. So the format had to be adjusted. We're yet to see the result of the 2020 classes um, for because it's three months out, the statistics for um, for careers. So it should happen anytime soon. Um, that will be very interesting to see what we have what I have heard from my colleagues from the Career Development Center is that the um, with no surprise, all the e-commerce, retail, telecom, um, e-commerce is doing really well, is doing well. MBBs are, are still recruiting as well. But the big shift is with the TMT sector. Ah, travel and entertainment. It, it's um, it's t- TMT is a telecom media. It, ah, all these. Right, exactly. Technology, IT. So everyone is interested in what you're really looking for in a candidate. I mean, it's generally known that given the international composition of the student body, you do expect some evidence that people have are interested in in a global career. Uh, Maybe they've lived in different places. Maybe they've worked in different places. If they've worked with members of a team who've come from different continents. When when you look at at a candidate, how do do you determine if they're international enough? Is is it possible? uh, Because uh, I know that a very key part of the NCAT experience is you know, having people in a classroom that are open and embracing of different cultures, geographies, peoples, ideas, backgrounds, and, and that's what makes the NCAT experience so rich. There are many ways of understanding that, but I agree with you, it's a little bit subtle. It, it's not something that is just evidence like this by uh, looking at a CV. There are many ways of looking at it. The first thing thing is um, 
is not just if the person has lived abroad or traveled, is more on what the person has learned from those experiences. And that is usually commented on the um, on the essays, in the essays or in the video, because we have questions related to that. So we encourage people to, to explain how that made them different to be exposed to other cultures and what they liked about it. So it's it's that sort of reflection that we would like to to see. It's also in the uh, in the interviews with the alumni. Alumni are conducting interviews for us, and this is the reason why we ourselves in admissions we do not do the interviews as part of the selection process, and we ask the alumni to do it because. It's very likely that, for example, if you are a foreigner, an expat in a country, you will yourself be interviewed by an expat and by somebody who is local, Ah, Um, mm -hmm. because then you can have this different perspective. So when the admissions officer select the interviewers per applicant, it's not just a a random pick in the list by alphabetical order. It's Uh more... Is that person going to be able to to understand the applicant? So that's the aim. That's the idea. And that goes, I give an example of nationality here, but it's the same with gender. It's the same with the sector, professional sector. So we try to have somebody who would be in a very different professional sector and somebody who would be closer. Because again, when you express your ideas, when you have somebody in front of you and you have absolutely no idea what the person does or the, what the sector is all about, when you when you have this conversation in the interview, you can perceive if the person is open-minded. Um, and that is linked, even if it's not per se international travel, it's still linked to this open-mindedness, it's adaptability and flexibility and how you rea- react in a, in a sensitive way to somebody who is different from your background. Right. Now, Caroline has had the advantage of a- having had your job years ago. Maria counsels people without having had your job. I wonder if Maria has mysteries about the NCI admissions process that she would love for you to unravel. <laughs> So th- thanks for setting me up that way, John. That's great. I really, I really love these these unexpected um, things. I mean, well, I, I'll say, I, you know, not that I'm avoiding your question, John, but I do really like how INSEAD is pretty transparent in its admissions materials. For example, um, for like the GMAT, you you pretty much say like if you look if you're below a certain percentile. Yeah, it can still happen, but we really discourage you to not apply if your test scores are beneath a certain percentile. Or the same thing with, you know, you're very open about the fact that significant international experience is what you're looking for and not a spring break trip to Mexico. It's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite what, you know, enough. Um, and so I, I really, I do appreciate how how transparent overall I think you you guys are with that. I think, I, I wonder, are you guys, I believe, tend to, admit people who are a little bit older on average, maybe a year, perhaps a year, maybe two more years of experience. Is that is that on purpose or is that just based on who you happen to see in your applicant pool? Perhaps people, they wait a few more years and they get a little bit more maturity before applying to a place like INSEAD or is that, are you intentionally valuing a little bit more professional experience? That's a very interesting question, and I, I always I pay attention to this one because 
the age is is kind of linked with a keyword that you you just said maturity but sometimes you can have people who are 23 24 and have already everything to demonstrate their maturity but it is true that because the whole experience is MBA experience at INSEAD is based on what you will be able to contribute and what you will be able to share with the others. It's true that when the professional experience, but more than the professional experience, it's the life experience. When your life experiences are are shorter, then obviously we feel, the admissions committee feels that there there could be less contribution in the classroom discussions and also also outside the classroom. So in all the student clubs and all the different activities that we have outside as well. So I think this is this is kind of a link. But it's it's true that we see impressive people who are 24 and, and have already um, this maturity and have been able to live in, in different countries or work for one or two companies. That that happens. It, it's also maybe an, an, in addition to, to this, if we were to recruit from, I would say, UK, US, um, Ang- Anglo-Saxon educational system, we would probably be able to have younger or more younger populations. Huh? But if you if you take to in France, for example, you study five years, the vast vast majority of the time you study five years, and then you will work two, three years, you will come into the program, you are already 20, 27, 28. And where an American or or a British would be 24. Uh, 25. Same thing with because of the diversity. Again, coming back to, you have countries where you have to do the military service. So Greek, Israeli, Korean, all these people will come slightly later in the program as well. Brazilians, same thing because you you in Brazil you work at the same time as you study at least the last two years. So you tend to study slightly longer. So I think that adds also to the fact that we, because of the diversity of the pool, people tend to be slightly one year older. And do, you think, do you think that that maturity is, a, is one of the reasons that your recruiters, in addition to the fact that if a recruiter comes in, say, oh, they know they're going to get a really global a candidate pool, do you think they also are are valuing the fact that there might be a little bit of additional maturity on the part of the students? So, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. And that's what I'm paying attention to. Yes. When we look at the, the because we do a lot of interviewer consistency and analysis, and we look at the correlation with the final decision and the, the interviewer comments, obviously, we have to make sure that the interviewers are we're not discriminating or biasing uh, towards anyone, obviously. Um, now, as an outsider, stepping back from the admissions process, I see two distinctive differences with many of the U.S. schools. One is many U.S. schools have actually diminished some of the requirements to apply. They've you know, brought down the number of essays you may have to write. They've tried to simplify the application and make it easier to apply, in part to get more people to apply. And a lot of U.S. programs, particularly this year, given the pandemic, are promoting 
waiver policies for standardized tests. It seems to me that at NCIAD, I mean, you really have to work to apply and you and your staff have to work very hard on each application because of the number of essays, the number of words, the thoroughness with which you're evaluating candidates. Why don't you make it easier on yourself? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> Um, and 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 I I sometimes reflect over this, and um, I think that would be that would be possible if we had less diversity. Yes, because we need with this selection process, then you can give everyone a chance to showcase themselves and to demonstrate they're good and they fit in SEAD. Because it's a lot of uh, people at the moment are, or and a lot of schools are also considering your contribution, engagement with the community, for example, or NGO work or this sort of, of activities. If that is possible in some countries, this is very common, or extracurricular activities, sports. But in some nationalities from which we recruit, it's not in the in the DNA, it's not something you you typically do. So if we were, and it doesn't mean that they are no good for a program. It doesn't mean they are lazy. It doesn't mean, it's just that it's not part of the culture. Right. And if we were to have less essays, for example, and we were not able to grasp what people have as a, as a uniqueness, as a key differentiator, then we could miss on, on some good profiles. Right. So I think it's it's only because of the diversity of of the applicant pool that we have to have those. I also feel it's also linked to the one year format. When you have a two year program, you you land on the program and you can the first month if you're not following the rhythm, if you you're kind of not ready then that's okay. With a one-year program, you can always make up later with a two-year program or a 16, 18-month. With a one-year program, you really need to hit the ground running. And um, if we had not pushed people to make this sort of introspection during the selection process, then you have they arrive on campus and they already have um, the career development center team talking to them about what they want to do in a year time. They already have the coach. They already have everything arriving because we have to fit everything in one year and it right. works. People like this intensity. This is, this is why recruiters come to us. That's what they say. But then we have to kind of pre-prepare people without them knowing <laughs> with this sort of introspection <laughs> work in the essays. I don't know, Caroline, if you want yeah, to. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And what I see working with candidates who are applying to INSEAD and applying to other stores as well is that when they start working on the INSEAD application, they're very daunted, right? And there's a lot of questions. It's quite demanding. As you say, it requires a lot of reflection. There's some tricky questions in there that you can't just sort of dash out from one day to the next. It does require you to sort of really take a step back. And there's a lot of word count, right? You've really got to spend some time developing that material. And, and then they look at some of the US applications and think, oh, that's so much easier because there's, you know, there's, le there's less work to do. 
But it's not necessarily the case, right? Sometimes telling your story in 3,000 words is easier than telling your story in 800 words, right? It, it, and, and candidates at the end of the day, I often hear, hear them say that they feel that they have been able to present, you know, the, the, their full story to INSEAD. And they're nervous sometimes with the applications to the US that they've had to sort of cut things down so much that has this, does the school really appreciate, you know, the different aspects of what they bring to the table because they've had to sort of reduce things to, to such a level. So, so I do hear from candidates that, you know, they're very proud of their INSEAD application at the end of the day because they feel that they have had a chance to have their say and really get across, you know, the the different aspects and, and the diversity of their experience and, you know, what a rounded candidate they are. And that, that can actually, you know, at first glance, that may it may look easier to do an application that's shorter, but at the end of the day, sometimes it makes candidates more nervous because they haven't been able to you know, can convey all the, the sort of richness of their professional experience, their personal experience, their international experience, their extracurriculars, you know, and, and tell all of that story. So, so I think, you know, candidates at the end of the day, once they've put themselves through that process, they do appreciate that INSEAD is, is doing that and why they do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other distinctive feature of your admissions process, which is uh, quite unusual, is the, uh, the involvement of the faculty. And, and, I, and, you know, most other uh, business schools, particularly in the U.S., faculty are not involved in admission decisions. H- how does that happen at NCIAD? Do they sit on the committee? Do they actually review applications? Or do they just basically hear your recommendations? H- how does that interaction work with the faculty? So the admissions committee comprises alumni and faculty, indeed. Mm-hmm. And what I find really interesting, and probably the reason why it's it it has always been the case. So when Caroline was with us, that was already the case, and it's I I have I don't remember when that started, but probably long ago. Um, I like the combination of the 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 two and their perspective. Uh, we have a very interesting debate in, during the admissions committee meetings where you have an alumni who would like to give a chance to an applicant, but the faculty feels, oh my God, but I don't see how I could teach that person for that and that reason. <laughs> um, so you have the alumni willing to have the diversity sometimes and being really bold. And you have the, the faculty who feel, Oh, but that I might be too challenged, or I might have that, and and then it's it's this very insightful discussions where we we exchange views on on applicants, and that makes that very very enriching. Yeah, I can see that. The other thing I, I do like about it is that uh, faculty become invested in these admission decisions, and I would think that that kind of helps their commitment to the students as they go through this very accelerated, very intense experience. And and incidentally, just, uh, you know, putting all these different cultures together, as well as going through a 10-month intense experience, complicates things. And I'm sure, you know, there are times when people may feel lost and to be invested in by the faculty, knowing that they wanted you there as well, I think is a very helpful attribute of mm-hmm. the, the whole system you've put in place. It, it's a lot, very, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. it's a very challenging classroom to teach as well. I mean, I, I've yeah. heard the faculty often say that compared to teaching at some other top business schools and especially the US schools, it's a very tough classroom to teach 
because of that incredible diversity, you've just got people from so many different perspectives that will be challenging you every step of the way. So, so as you say, you know, having that faculty involvement is helpful because they, you know, at the end of the day, they have to bring that group of people together and make it work. And it's not easy. <laughs> and that's very true. Yeah. And knowing that the perspective in the admissions team and the admissions committee is always, can we give a, ch give a chance to that person? It's not, oh, no, uh, we don't want to go that route. It's more with this person, though the profile may not be in a clear one, would this person contribute and how? So it's more giving a chance to people who could otherwise maybe overlooked, not not admitted, if we didn't have different perspective. So so that's that's where what I really like. One thing also that I like about this admissions committee is the fact that we 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 never consider like I've heard in, in some other schools, we never consider the employability, if I may. So whether this person would be able to get a job after. We, we, we trust that our graduates will be able to find the job that they wish. It might not just be at graduation, upon graduation. It could be three months. It could be six months after. But we trust our graduates without having to have this sort of career perspective in mind that is a little bit tweaked because of the rankings. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> find I that refreshing. Absolutely. Now, there are a lot of uh, U.S. schools that have created deferred admission programs. You know, at Harvard, it's called 2 plus 2, where, you know, you're admitted as a senior at, in, at undergraduate level, and then you're required to go off for two or three years, do some work. But basically, you have an acceptance in your pocket, and you can just show up. Have you considered a deferred admission program? That is kind of linked to the question earlier that Maria asked about the mat maturity, maturity and the contribution. Yeah, and the contribution. We do have a, a kind of a little bit similar, but it's not the same scheme. It's not organized like um, the two plus two. It, it's more of the um, it deferred admissions in the sense that we feel that the person is definitely an INSEAD fit. But to come back to Maria's point earlier, we feel that it would be better if the person was to stay for an additional four or six months in the job and start later. So it's not two years. It's not admissions valid forever. It's more, we liked your profile. Um, you applied for this class. However, we feel you would be better off with the other class and we make an admissions offer for the following class. I see. Right. And, and uh, a, a number of schools in the U.S. are becoming test optional or are actively promoting test waiver policies. I'm assuming that's not going to be true at NCAD in part because the experience is so intense. You want the assurity of the test to make sure that they can handle the quant work. Is that right? That's very right. It's also linked to the different educational system that our people have, our applicants have attended before. Again, if we had one scale, one GPA on, uh, on the scale of four or five to choose from, we would know what are the 10% and, and what is a 5% top grades or dean's list 
here we have to be very mindful that a 12 in France is, is a good grade, though it's a, it's a scale of 20. We know that in Italy, you need to have 110, cum laude. We know the different, the different um, scales in the world. Yet, the way the, way the GMAT prep the, the, for a, a one-year program is important. So this is the reason why we will, we will keep the, the GMAT and we are not going to waive it. We believe it's a good way of preparing people for a one-year program to put people back into books into study mode and um, so it's it's a very useful tool for both the applicants and us it's not because so the the total score matters less uh, again because it's a 700 doesn't mean that you will be having a, a, an amazing gpa in during the the one-year program we know that nor that you will have the, the best job ever. It's, it's just a good way of, for us to, again, understand your academic capacity, the, 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 um, to, com- to have this comprehensive idea of, of the academic part and to pre- prep the person for um, an intense program. I view it more like this than anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one of the most exciting things to have at NCR just happened relatively recently, and that's the launch of your MIM program. I'm wondering, how is it evolving? How are the students uh, reacting to the program itself? I love them. (laughs) (laughs) I love them. (laughs) So the the first class is is amazing. They are so engaged. That's funny because you have this pioneering feeling they're really collaborative. They're helping each other. They're willing to share with the, the incoming students or with the, 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 the next class. They are also, one thing that I really liked is they're, unlike sometimes the, the MBAs, they are still kind of happy to hear from you what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the, the MBA or more, oh, no, I know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's, um, with this COVID situation, when we say, look, it's that you do a PCR test once, once per week and you come to campus, it's a lot easier to roll out with, with a MIM class than with MBAs when you don't know <laughs> what time they will be coming in. And so uh, MBAs are a, a lot more um, difficult to drive from, for my colleagues from program management, I heard. <laughs> and that maturity leads to more demanding uh, people, probably. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Virginia, do you think you're going to enroll uh, a class in September that will be as large as the class you've just enrolled or not? For we the go MBAs back to for, the, old, the yeah, MB, oh, MBAs. Yeah, for the MBAs, oh no, the plan is to go back to go back. 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the idea with the 600 was just to not jeopardize anyone's chance to be admitted. Right. Because of the deferrals from the previous class. So yeah, that's what I would have to, assumed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but your MIM class that. probably will grow in size, right? Your MIM class will get bigger. Yes, yes, a little bit. Yes, we hope we have more applications to choose from, so we will be probably growing the, the class size. And you enrolled in your first cohort. How many people again? 
in mid 93. 93. And I think you were yeah. expecting 60 the first time out, right? Yeah, we were wondering what to expect. So we thought 60, 60 is a good size of a section for mm -hmm. classroom. At Intel, it works well. But then we decided, okay, let's have that and fee and 80 people. And then we moved to another MV and 93 people. So 120 sounds like a good number for the second cohort. Uh, let's bet. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Now, Caroline Maria, you have any other final questions for Virginie? Just, just on the MIM, Virginie, are they all in Fontainebleau or is it across both campuses? So they all start together in Fontainebleau and they all move together to Singapore. And they actually moved this week or last week to Singapore. So they are I read all about arriving that. in Singapore. I read right. about that on your website, in fact. And what an exciting experience for a MIM, a younger person, to get that education in two different places, very different from each other. And that's a really unique aspect of your MIM program that doesn't exist anywhere else. Yes, to be together on, in the, uh, those two locations, I agree. Yeah, and, and different ones. You're, you're right, yeah. Great. Maria. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about how one of the signature aspects of the INSEAD experience is that it's this very intense one-year experience. Have you guys ever considered expanding it to create a, perhaps a two-year option? If it were up to me, it would be like a 10-year option because I would love to spend <laughs> several years of my life going between Fontainebleau and Singapore, but I get it. You can't cater just to me. Uh, but for other people, you know, have you ever considered perhaps expanding and creating a Uh, MBA plus or a, a you know a, a longer uh, program. That will be probably a question for for the dean. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's part of the DNA to have this idea of uh, one year program. It was launched like this. Uh, it is, I think, a a key differentiator among schools. People go to INSEAD for this, that reason, for the opportunity cost, for the ROI, for the one-year intense program? That's a good question. I, we, uh, we had a few people doing what we decided to call a period six um, because the one-year program is divided into five periods. So we have P1 to P5. We also have a P0 now, so online onboarding with a few activities that happen. So we have a P0 and we did a, a, P, a few P6 for, because of the pandemic. So people who needed to take, take um, a few credits. So that could be a good way of asking them if, if a 12, 14-month program was, was good for them, a good experience. I would bet that a high percentage of your graduates love the place so much that they regret leaving it after 10 months. Caroline, <laughs> it does go very fast. You know, I have to say that, you know, I remember January 2004 when I had graduated from the program and I felt like I jumped off a speeding train, right? It's because it's such an intense experience. It's all consuming. And then you go back to normal life, right? So it's a different life because you've probably changed careers and and so on. But it took a while to adjust to that different pace. Even though I'm starting a new job, right, it was like a big learning curve. It was not the same intensity as as being an INSEAD. And I really missed that. It was, you know, I, I, I was uh, sort of in withdrawal for a while of, of being in this incredible community, this incredible energy, 
and that incredible learning curve that you have during that 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 ten month program. So I was glad um, personally to do the January entry um, because then it, it is twelve months because you have the two month break in the summer and I did an internship then. So to me, you know, that was really valuable for me because I was looking to make a career change. So doing that internship was super useful. And then then it made it a, you know a full one year experience. So so I, I personally really like that that option. Mm. Is there a do you find that many applicants have a preference for the January start or or not really? No, it's we don't we don't see a preference. It, it's almost like two different products. Mm. September ones applicants are typically people who decide to do an MBA. They are not necessarily career changer. They want a quick um, return on investment. They apply to multiple schools. It's a it's a little bit different. Where for the January, it's usually people targeting finance or the banking sector. It's usually people who would would like to change and take advantage, like yourself, Caroline, to do a, an internship or or just to take a break go back to their their company we have people who had startup before and they go back for two months to their company so it's a different pace yes that's great well listen it's been such a pleasure to see you and to speak with you and to get the lowdown on NCON. i mean there's no doubt it's unique it's distinctive it's a special experience that really can't be had anywhere else the fact that you have multiple campuses and now you even have your san francisco outpost which I was privileged to attend on the opening uh, and to meet with your dean just before he returned back to Europe. So thank you so much, Virginie, for spending your time with us. I know how valuable it is given how hectic things are right now. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me and thank you for organizing. That was really nice. Absolutely. So and thank you, Carolina Maria, once again. And for all of you out there listening, thanks for checking in. You've been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast, all about NCOD from the person who knows NCOD better than anybody. <laughs> thanks for listening.